All right, please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 16. I'll begin reading verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Uh, in reading this passage, I was, it brought to my remembrance an event in my life when I was ordained to the gospel ministry. I was in my early 20s, and I was invited to uh, Valencia High School to add their um, college in, or their career day. And they invited people from various professions to um, speak on their career. And so through some situation, I got invited to that. Um, And there was a classroom. Each person had their own classroom that they would go go to, and the students could pick different periods of which profession they wanted to hear people speak about. And I remember very, very vividly um, being in that classroom and speaking about the the gospel ministry. It was a great opportunity to talk about what a minister of the gospel does. And the very first question, um, the student, um, after kind of a time of introduction and, and explanation, they could ask questions. And the student raised her, her hand and she said, um, what happens to people who have never heard the gospel? And I was so struck that, um, by that, t- two, two reasons. One, I mean, it made me think of this text, not directly, but indirectly. But the question usually is asked, and I think it was in this situation too, only God knows the heart of the person, it's not usually asked with a, a sincere desire for an answer to that question. Most people, they're not really concerned about people who have never heard the gospel. But usually it's a way to kind of overt the situation, to uh, kind of um, get around what's going on, and often to appease their own conscience. As a way of saying, if I can stump you, then I don't need to listen to what you're saying. And. That's very similar to the text that we're reading, not only the the immediate text, but the context. And what Paul is doing here is he's speaking to a group of people in a sense. As he lays out his gospel to the people at Rome, this chapter 2 is he's dealing with a lot of objections to the gospel. And often they're they're seem to be coming in a way of not, not a sincere way. It's not that they're really concerned about this situation or this argument, but as a way to um, dismiss what Paul is saying, as a way to silence um, his, his message, and then they can have their own conscience clean and, and move on. And so what we're going to um, do is, is look at this passage as Paul deals with the subject of those who have not received the special revelation of God. And in this case, he's not talking about the gospel. He's not talking about the special revelation of the gospel of God, but the special revelation of the law of God, the law of God. And the context here, Paul is elaborating on verse 11. Verse 11, let's read that. It says, For God shows no partiality. 
And so what he does is he begins to continue with this theme of God's judgment will not be partial. His judgment will not be partial. And he lays out here two groups of people, two groups of people we see in verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law, so that's the first group, will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law, that's the second group, will be judged by the law. And so we'll look at this section of, of Scripture with these two groups in mind. First, we'll look at the, those who had the law, those who were um, under the law or in, in the law, the Jews. And then after that, we'll look at those without the law, the Gentiles. And we'll look at the, the Jews first under two headings, two headings. Our first point will be mere possession of the law does not save you. Mere possession of the law does not save you. Now, contrary to what the Jews thought, they thought because they had the law, because they had Torah, it was kind of their ticket to heaven, their ticket to be right with God, to be saved. And it was actually the exact opposite, is the, the law that they were hoping in was going to be the very instrument by which they would be judged. It was going to be the very instrument that would, would come, in a sense, against them. Their privileges, in a sense, they did have privileges, and they did, in a sense, have the first place in line, but they had the first place in line for judgment. Look at verse 9, as we looked at some time ago, last time we were in this passage. Verse 9 says, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, and also the Greek. And so their privileges, instead of it being something that they should have put their hope in and trusted in, it was going to be something that's going to come back on them, come back against them in the judgment. Jesus already spoke to the Jews about this. In John chapter 5, he said this in verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And so it was not true in Paul's day. It is not true in our day to merely have the word of God, to have Torah, to have the law, or we could even say to have the Bible is not to have salvation. To be close to the things of God does not necessarily mean you're close to God. And I encourage the, the, the young people here, the children, those who are not part of the, the church here, to be close to the things of God, as, as you are right now, does not mean that you're necessarily close to God, does not mean that you have God's privileges. It'd be a great, great tragedy to be so close to the fountain of living water and, and die of thirst, to be that close. And that's what takes place with people who are in church, who hear the word of God and, and do not actually trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Jews trusted in Moses and the law, all the while missing the whole point and purpose of the law. Later in this letter, Paul will say that Christ is the end of the law for, self, for, uh, for righteousness to those who believe. And the, the, what it was pointing to, they, they missed. In that same passage in John chapter 5 earlier, Jesus said this, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And so if you come to church, 
and you miss Jesus Christ, then you, you miss the, the whole point. If you re- read your Bible and you miss Jesus Christ, then you miss everything. If you're not interested in church, if you're not interested in what's taking place here, you're ultimately you're not rejecting the, the people here or you're not rejecting your, your parents' way. You're rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not merely being close to the things of God that saves you. It's not merely having the things of God in the sense that saves you, hearing the word of God that saves you. Mere possession of the law did not do you any good in a sense. Now, why is that? Why is merely, not, merely having it not enough? And this leads us to our second point about the Jews, our second point. What does the Lord require of you? What does the Lord require of you? Mere possession of the law does not save you because, or as verse 13 says, for, or that word can be taken as because, look at verse 13. For or because it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. What does the Lord require of you? He didn't require mere hearing of his law. He required the doing of his law. He didn't require simply to to have his law. He required that they would actually perform it, to do it, as we just even read in Leviticus, that they were to do these things. This is what the Old Testament taught everywhere. Listen to Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. In Christ Jesus, he taught the same thing. He says in Matthew 5, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so always, everywhere, the Old Testament, Christ confirmed it, that the law was given to be performed, to be done, not to simply to be heard, not to be trusted in, in and of itself. Now, this passage, um, verse 13, and and the whole passage, Paul is not laying out the, the way in which someone can be justified yet. He is establishing that the Jews were guilty because they did not perform it, that he was trying to press upon them their, their guilt because they were trusting in the mere possession of the law. And so this verse 13 shouldn't cause any of us to stumble in trying to reconcile this verse with later on in, in the um, letter when Paul establishes that we are justified on the basis of faith in Christ Jesus. I'll read 13 again. It says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who, we, who will be justified. And so he is establishing their guilt. He is not yet dealing with how can someone be justified. Throughout this section, chapter 2, Paul has constantly taught that the doing of the law is the fruit. It's the fruit of our salvation. It's not the root of our salvation. And so we are not justified by doing, but those who are justified, you will see the evidence in their life. If you look at verses 6 through 10 that we we spoke about last time, we talked much about that. So that's the position of the Jew. The position of the Jew is one that is 
doesn't have salvation merely by possessing the law. They were called to do the law, and Paul is pressing this on them so that they would see their own lack, that they would see their need for righteousness outside the law. Let's move on to speak about the Gentile now, are those without the law, those without the law. And we'll look at this under three headings, three headings. First, the absence of the law does not excuse you. The absence of the law does not excuse you. So if the possession of the law did not save you, then does not having the law, does that excuse you? And that gets close to that question that the high schooler asked. If someone doesn't have the sufficient information, are they then excused from God's judgment? And verse 12 answers this explicitly. Verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And so in a sense, God's not going to use some knowledge that they don't have against them, but they're not exempt. They're not exempt from the judgment of God. And before we get into Paul's argument and reasoning, which is the bulk of this passage, the, the way it's even worded here gives us a hint at the question. Often, at least in the modern setting, people present the question, whether it's the law they're speaking of or often the gospel, is they see it as a group of innocent people who have never heard of some knowledge of God. Are they excused? And if you look at the question here, Paul says, all who have sinned without the law. And so the, the basis of which the question is being approached at is we're talking about a group of sinners, people who have violated the, um, um, God's rules for all who have sinned. So we could say there are some who do not have the special revelation of God's law, but there are none who have not sinned. There are none who have not sinned. But the scriptures doesn't just give us a, a mere assertion here. It gives us reasons why this is true. And so let's look then at why. Why is it that the absence of the law does not excuse people? And this is our second, our second um, heading. Our second heading is, what does your heart tell you? What does your heart tell you? Look at verse 14 as he explains how can those who have never received God's law be guilty before God? Verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do, not, they do not have the law. And so twice in this verse, he makes it clear that the Gentiles do not have the law, and yet they're still held accountable because he says, by nature, they do what the law requires, which is evidence that they have some knowledge of God, of God's law. Because by nature, they're doing what the law requires, and therefore, they are accountable before God. They are accountable to him, which he words it this way, they are a law to themselves. And so, in a sense, they, they do have a law. They are a law to themselves. They're not completely without law in that sense. Now, when the Apostle Paul refers to nature, he's speaking of, of that which one has from the original creation, that which is not um, given, I like we spoke of special revelation, whether the law or the gospel, but that which someone has not been taught. They haven't acquired this. They were created this way. They have it from nature, by nature, from the original creation. The Gentiles did not receive the special revelation of God's law, but they did receive the, the general revelation of nature. They are not without revelation. 
they are not without revelation. Now, this is not teaching that they perfectly keep the law of God. When it says that by nature they do what the law requires, it's not speaking of a perfect, obviously, um, keeping of the law of God. And you can even see the difference in Paul's language later on in Romans, in chapter 8 and other parts, he talks about the, the believer, those in the spirit, they fulfill the law. They are given the spirit to fulfill the law. And so he doesn't use that word fulfill. He says, but um, by nature, do what the law requires. They do what the law requires. And so there are people in, in our experience that they may not murder. They may even honor their, their, their father and mother. And they do things that are a reflection of God's law, but that's not to say that they are perfectly keeping the law in every regard. Another clarification is uh, we shouldn't think of this phrase, they are a law to themselves, the way we use it in common speech today. Often that's, that's referring to when someone says they're a law to themselves in a very negative way of they are independent, they, they think that they will go by their own rules, that they're not subject to anybody else's rule, and that's um, almost exactly opposite of what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's not using it in that way, where he's not saying they are without other people's law. Is The law is engraved. It's, it's within them. They are a law to themselves because God's law has been put within them. And so it's far from being free from the law. Their own being is testifying of God's law. They are a law to themselves. And this is made clear in the next verse. Look at verse 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. So verse 15 explains how those without the law do what the law requires. God has implanted his law at, on, their, on their hearts or at the center of their being or within them. He has placed the, his law there. So they, they are a law unto themselves. They have the law in themselves, not the Mosaic law externally given to the people of Israel. This text is a little bit difficult to glean application um, 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 for the people of God, and this is probably the, the main application um, I, I want you guys to receive from this. There's many things for the unbeliever, and there are things for us to glean, but um, I found this the most encouraging part of, of studying this. People in general, not only are they surrounded by the glory of God, not only do they perceive God's glory everywhere, but they also are, in a sense, um, one has put it, they're invaded by the, the revelation of God. And so in, in God's general revelation, he has not only shown it in the stars, like Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. We can look around and we can see God's glory. But in this text, it shows us that God is revealing himself even within, within. There's this, uh, if you want to call it a, a moral compass, there's a sense of right and wrong that God has, and, and he's saying a little bit more than that, is the Jew who has the law, he says the Gentile have the law within. And we'll make further clarification of what that doesn't mean. It's not that they love God's law, but that they have a, a knowledge of God, a knowledge of his law. Now, why this is an encouragement is with the world the way it is, more and more it seems like the world is completely unnatural. And it seems like things go so contrary to nature and yet we see that people can't completely eliminate the knowledge of God. There is a, a sense of, of, of hope. We shouldn't despair as, as believers to say we just can't reach people. We, we can't 
we wish we could get in, in a sense, we get the knowledge of God in them, and in one sense, we, we want to keep doing that and make the gospel known, but there should be a hopefulness to say, in a sense, it's already in them. In a sense, they cannot completely obliterate it. They might um, do various things to mutilate their bodies, but they cannot erase their nature. They cannot mutilate the nature. And so we can be hopeful to say that God is, is bearing witness and that we should continue to point out and bear witness, but God's witness within cannot be obliterated. It cannot be eliminated. It's kind of like, I think, in the French Revolution, um, they were tearing down some of the chapels and they wanted the people to um, get away from religion. And they said, we're going to tear down your, your, your steeples so that you will no longer think about this God. And one person responded, and he says, you, you can tear down all the churches, but you can't rip the stars out of the heavens. And that's, in a sense, what we're saying is, yes, they can destroy their bodies, they can, they can plug their ears, but within, there's still a voice. God has put his law within. And so don't lose heart in witnessing, evangelizing, sharing with people, and saying, I, I just, I can't get through to them. In a sense, God has gone through. His word is there. Now, it's not saving but it is the knowledge of God, and it, and it cannot be ultimately eliminated. It cannot be ultimately erased. And us people of God, we may feel more and more like strangers on this earth. We may feel more and more like outsiders from so many areas of culture, and yet we should never forget that this still is our Father's world, that people cannot ultimately change the nature of man. They may try in many ways to distort it, but they can't ultimately eliminate that. And so we can sing that hymn, Joyfully, oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. God is still the ruler and his law is still written. The work of his law is still written on the heart of those who he created. People are still created in the image of God and that will not be eliminated. They may hate it. They may distort it and make it very ugly, but they actually, they, they cannot eliminate that. They cannot eliminate that. Now, what is the content of this law? I, I touched on it in just um, a little bit, and we won't go too, too deeply into this, but what is the content of this law? And the passage, the flow of the passage, it seems obvious and clear that the Jews, their law was given externally, and this same law he is giving to the Gentiles, he says that he um, writes it on their hearts, that the Jews had the written law on stone tablets and the Gentiles had the work of the written of the, of the law written on their hearts. Now, this does not, I don't believe, mean that they had the full knowledge of God's law, the clarity that the Jew had, or else the Jewish privileges would be lost. Next chapter, he says, what advantage then has the Jew? Because he just kind of equaled them all out. In chapter 3, he says, much in every way. So we shouldn't interpret this in such a way to eliminate the advantage, the privileges the Jew has. And the very first thing he mentions, or maybe the only thing I think in chapter 3 he mentions, is they had the word of God. They were given the word of God. So that takes supremacy. That is, is, is to be seen as they had the word of God. They are given to them the clarity. And so we should interpret this as it was not as clear. It was not as clear as those, in a sense, stone tablets. But the finger that wrote those is the finger that wrote on the, the heart of man. And that may be why the word, partly why he says written on their hearts. Another um, clarification 
Notice the text, it doesn't say God wrote his law in their heart. And that's often what we say, that's often what we may think. It doesn't actually say he wrote the, the law on their hearts. Look at closely here at verse um, 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. The work of the law is written on their hearts. And so there is this sense of what is the, the purpose or the work of the law. And some may say a righteousness or, or, or to love or um, various things like that. And so the, the general bent and purpose of the law, that is, is what is written on their hearts. Um, if you look at nations and, and if you look at history, you do generally see a lot of similarity of moral law. As you see, often they did have um, a lot of cultures in history had laws about religious worship. Um, the, a lot of cultures had laws about honoring, respecting authorities, whether it be father and mother. Um, they had laws about um, not um, murdering. That's a very common universal law about even laws of fidelity and, and, and marriage. Those very common laws throughout history and, and not stealing and, and um, not bearing false um, witness. And those laws are, are not so peculiar to Judaism or, or to Christianity. And those laws hopefully sound very familiar to you as you look at them to say we're not speaking of that, those ceremonial laws or those, those judicial laws that were given to Israel that passed away, but those moral laws that are summarized in the Ten Commandments, those moral laws, God, he wrote the work of that on their hearts. And so we're not saying that they would necessarily have on their heart, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And yet it does seem like there are universal principles of that within all countries and nations um, throughout history, or generally speaking. So the content of this law, we would say that that moral law, those Ten Commandments, not necessarily explicitly in, in, in every single detail, but um, the, the work of it, the essence of it. And one more clarification, the word work of the law may be used to distinguish it from that great blessing of the new covenant. Do you remember the new covenant blessing? What is, there's, there's several blessings in there, but one of the main blessings says in Jeremiah 31, 31, or 31, 33, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And so Paul may be distinguishing that he's not saying the same, same thing that obviously the Gentiles and those who do not have God don't have this new covenant blessing. That is not what he's teaching. And so the work of the law may be a, partly a distinction to say, He's not speaking of that same blessing. The Gentiles had a knowledge of God. Well, in verse 14, he refers to it as what the law requires. They did what the law requires. They had a, um, the work of the law written on their hearts, but do not have what the, the psalmist experienced when he said in Psalm 119, oh, how I love your law. And that, you see, greatly fulfilled in the, in the new covenant, this desire to to uh, value God's law. Listen to Psalm 119 on 9 through 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. A heart that loves God and treasures it for the purpose of obeying him that, that's what that new covenant blessing was speaking of. He writes his, heart, his law on our heart not to give us mere knowledge of him, but that we would walk in his way. Or Ezekiel says it explicitly in the new covenant blessing 
Ezekiel 36, 27. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so it's a, a, a change of heart. It's a, a new heart. It's a new spirit within us. It's a heart of obedience that results in, in a life that pleases the Lord. And so this is um, the Gentiles, what they have is the general work of the law written on their heart, this knowledge of God's law. The new covenant blessing is a life that loves the law, that obeys the law, that fulfills the law. So we entitled this, this point here, What Does Your Heart Tell You? So I ask you the question, so what does your heart tell you? It does not tell you, as is commonly said, to follow your heart. That's not the, the, the message, but to follow, in a sense, what is written on your heart, or namely the, the law, the work of the law of God, the work of the law of God. Or perhaps maybe a, a better way to say it is don't listen to your heart, but read what's on your heart. Read what's on your heart. This isn't teaching us, again, that we're a law to themselves and follow your heart, not at all. It's far from what he's saying. He's saying God's law, that, that God who, who with his finger wrote those Ten Commandments, he has impressed on the nature of mankind his knowledge the knowledge of himself and so read that read that off of your heart in a sense and this leads us to our 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 last point our last point entitled the highest court the highest court i don't know if paul intended to do this i'm I'm using it for an outline purpose i'm not saying he put it there but there's a lot of court words here. We already talked about law, and now he's going to go on and talk about witnesses and judges and um, accusations. And so there, there's, there's all, all this um, court talk. Some even think that if you separate the law and the conscience and the thoughts, that there's the, the witness, two or three, wit- everything's established on two or three witnesses. I think that may be a little bit of a stretch of what he was actually intending, but there's definitely this, this courtroom talk um, that... Um, appears here, and if, anyways, we'll use it for our outline of the highest court. The highest court. So first, let's look at the witnesses. The witnesses. It says in verse 15, They, the Gentiles, show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of man by Christ Jesus. And so if you notice the way the ESV renders it, it says the conscience, conscience also bears witness. So this is the, the second witness. So that the two witnesses are the law, the work of the law written on their heart, that is bearing witness. And then the, this other additional witness is this conscience now. Their own conscience is now bearing witness that you know God's law. You have it, the work of law is written on your heart. Your conscience is also bearing witness to this. So let's look very briefly at the relationship between the law and conscience. What is the relationship between the law and conscience? And let's first state the most obvious thing, that they're not the same thing. They're not the same thing. The way this renders it, it makes it two separate witnesses. And any look at the um, Bible, you'd see that our law, our conscience is not law. And we should not make it that. The conscience and the law are two separate things. Uh, One simple distinction, our conscience is fallible. God's law is not fallible. It is infallible. Uh, One definition of the conscience is that inward faculty of moral judgment. That inward faculty of moral judgment. 
In our passage, I believe what follows is, is a kind of a description of the conscience. Paul, or it's working, when he says their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And so we see the, the conscience, that's basically what it does. It, it accuses or it excuses. And he uses, I think, the word even. Um, that's kind of all, not what is commonly done. It's often a negative um, work where it's often accusing us of you shouldn't have done that, this voice of, of saying that was wrong, you shouldn't have done that. So this accusing, excusing, even excusing them is um, a good definition or a good description of the conscience working. Now, while the conscience is not the law, we should distinguish that, the conscience should be conformed to the law of God. It should be, and it's not always, but it, it should be conformed to the law of God. It may at times misinterpret the law of God. The conscience may sincerely see the God's law, and it may accuse us of things that maybe we have freedom to do, or the opposite. Our conscience may be say, that's okay, and we're misinformed, and the law of God has not come to bear upon us, and we don't have a, a tender conscience towards something to say, you know, maybe I really shouldn't be doing that. It's kind of like a... Um, an umpire or a referee in sports where the umpire, he doesn't make the rules for baseball. He hopefully is just applying and following the rules. And the umpire, what he does is he's supposed to call a strike a strike and a ball a ball according to what the rules say a strike is and a ball is. Now, sometimes he may call it wrong. He may, you know, see it wrong and he may or he may be influenced by something that someone upset him and he may call a strike something other than it is but he should be calling it as he sees it, according to the rules, according to the rules. So to the conscience, it may say something, again, is sinful when it's not according to the rules. And so we should seek to inform our conscience. We should seek to study and know God's law. And so then our conscience is liberated. We see this is what actually binds the conscience. This is actually what is right. This is wrong. And so if there's someone who maybe differs from you, you'll see this more in Romans 14, um, you want to be gracious and kind, where uh, maybe Corinthians is a better example, you want to um, have them have the, this knowledge that can actually free their conscience. So a, a bound conscience shouldn't be left there, it should be informed. It should be, hopefully the goal is to free it up. But even if the conscience is wrong, you still should obey your conscience. That's what Romans 14:23 tells us that we still should obey our conscience, inform it, enlighten it, help it, but don't go against your conscience. If you think something's wrong, don't, don't do it. Don't do it. So how does all this advance Paul's argument by bringing up the conscience? Well, very simply, the conscience presupposes some standard or law to conform to. The conscience is presupposing that it's saying, you broke that law, you broke that norm, you broke that standard. And so the conscience, it's, it's very work of accusing and excusing presupposes a pre-existent law. And so there again, the conscience is bearing witness. You know something of God's law because your conscience is using it to accuse or excuse you. Conscience further establishes their guilt. Now, not only do we have witnesses in this court, but we also have the judge, most importantly the judge verse 16 it says on that day when according to my gospel god judges the secrets of men by christ jesus god will judge on that great day of judgment by jesus christ he will judge by jesus christ 
Now, I don't know if you notice this, but the exact connection between verse 15 and verse 16 is, is not easy. It, it's, it's a little bit difficult to um, understand how do those two verses connect. Um, let me read it again, and hopefully you'll, you'll see the difficulty, and um, we'll, we can br- briefly discuss it. At the end of verse 15, he talks about the conscience bearing witness and their conflicting thoughts, accusing or even excuse, excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So he's clearly speaking of judgment day. He spoke about it in verse 5. And so what, if you read it like that, it sounds like your conscience is accusing and excusing you on that day, that judgment day, when God will judge the world, which may sound a, a little bit strange to say the conscience is going to accuse and excuse on judgment day. How is that to, to play out? And translators have struggled with this and if you have a new king james bible you may notice the parentheses or even an niv they put them at different places but the the king james and the new king james the niv they put parentheses there and the way they try to read it is to say that end of verse 15 is the end of a parentheses so 16 connects back to verse 13 or 14 um make that very simple is he starts off the section saying there's going to be this judgment people they're not saved by simply having the law but they're justified by um, th- those who do the law will be justified parentheses then he says on that day is when they'll be justified that's that's one way the um, translators have tried to um, answer how did this co- how did this connect does 16 connect back to verses earlier and talk about judgment and this is just a parentheses that's that's a possibility the esv doesn't do that um, and I think just a simple rendering of the ESV, it might actually help us understand maybe what Paul's getting at, even though it's difficult. This is um, what I think he's saying. Throughout people's lives, their consciences are accusing or excusing them, and that goes on throughout your life. So he's not saying that that is just going to happen on Judgment Day, no matter what way you render the the text. um, All would agree, throughout your life, there's this accusing, excusing, going on but the apostle then he connects that to the great judgment this accusing and excusing this conscience work in your life throughout your life it's not isolated from that judgment day it's connected it's that lifelong judgment going on inside of you it's going to culminate one day to that final judgment to that great day of judgment it's almost like a preview it's almost like a constant reminder you got this inward judging going on, there is going to be a day when it'll be a final judgment. You have this infallible judgment going on, there's going to be a judge, Jesus Christ, the one who God appointed, and he is going to judge infallibly, and he will judge perfectly. He's not going to judge with a partial judgment like we do, even to ourselves, a flawed judgment. He will come with this perfect, absolute judgment. And so this lifelong inward accusing, excusing will culminate in the judgment day and we'll see the, what it was leading up, what it was reminding, what it was intended to help us to um, be prepared for. The judge who will judge even our secrets, he says. There'll be nothing hid from this judge. The one who is all-knowing, he will judge all things in his perfect knowledge and in perfection. And so it establishes the, the main point of what Paul's been saying throughout this chapter is this judgment of God is, is, is perfect. It's just, it's impartial, it's, it's absolute. And one final thought to close out. 
is Paul says that this is going to happen according, he says, to my gospel. According to my gospel. And don't misunderstand what Paul's saying. He's not saying my personal gospel. He's not saying this is my version of the gospel. This is my take of the gospel message. That's, that's far from what he's saying. He's saying, I've been entrusted with this gospel. I've been commissioned with this gospel. This gospel has been given to me to proclaim. And so this is my gospel. And he's saying, you there in Rome, I'm laying out my gospel before you. I'm, I want to come and see you. And I, I, I desire for you to help me to get the gospel further out. And so here is the gospel I preach in all of its fullness, in a sense. Here is my defense of various things you probably heard about that I have said. And let me give you a full, well understanding of this gospel. My gospel is right here. It's laid out before you. And this is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gospel that he, the one who will judge all of the earth, has given me to proclaim. So let us close out together in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this gospel. We thank you for your, your perfect gospel. Oh Lord, we thank you that you, in your grace, have saved sinners. And Lord, we pray that we would take heart, that we would not be ashamed of this gospel, that we would proclaim it, that we would live according to it, that we would be faithful, Lord, to the end. Lord, we thank you for your gospel ministers, Lord. We thank you for those who, who died for this gospel. And Lord, we ask that we would be able to stand firm, Lord, in the truths of the gospel and the liberties and freedom of this gospel and to know with, with confidence that we will stand in your judgment because of this gospel, because of the Lord Jesus Christ, because of his death and his resurrection, that we can stand before you. We thank you that he has silenced the conscience, that he has cleansed our inward parts. Lord, we thank you that he has made us right with you. We thank you that we can partake, Lord, of the benefits of what Christ has accomplished because of this gospel. We pray this in his name. Amen.